Okay, guys, uh, welcome to another edition of Culture Class Podcast, uh, the podcast where we get to interact with people from different backgrounds, get to learn about other cultures in a casual way. My name is Mosayari, and welcome to another episode. Today, I have another guest. Welcome to the podcast, Cynthia. It's good to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's, it's amazing that we could meet up before I left dc to denver <laughs> like three days before right? yeah just three days literally like three days before i left dc and you know uh we supposed to have you know been on the podcast a while back actually when i called up um some of my notes i saw like episode 26 on your notes and i was like oh you know i should have had this uh interview a while back but it's good that we're here now just you know scheduling and things around dc has made it difficult for us to connect so this is like your send-off to Denver, basically. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> How's your weekend going so far? I mean, it's just getting started. It's 1 p.m., I think, on a Saturday, and it's, um, I'm enjoying a very hot day in D.C. Okay. When does the day start for you on a Saturday? 7 p.m.? 8 p.m.? You're being very optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say uh, around 10-ish, depending on what I've done on the Friday night. Okay. <laughs> Let's okay. just say 10 is like... Realistic. <laughs> okay, that's that's cool. That's cool. That's cool. And how long have you been in DC? Um, a bit more than two years now. Oh, I moved okay. here in the spring of 2017 after I graduated, and um, you know, I never thought I would make it to two years. Usually, people say that you know, one year is more than enough in DC, and then you have to get out. <laughs> really, I've never heard that. <laughs> I heard that a lot. Um, okay. So I know I'm like a veteran here. I feel like I can I can show people around. I have you know friends that I. Uh, new friends that I keep making, and uh, they're all like, we don't know anything about DC. You've been here so long, so you just got to tell us all about it. <laughs> I mean, you know, I can see that because, you know, I, I like saying that within my two years, uh, I came here in the fall of 2017 as well. And within my two years, yeah, I've like observed a lot of changes, like within a short period of time. So I can imagine people who have like lived here for like a decade or something, it would be like, it would be a vast contrast uh, of a city than what it was you know, when they came here. So. Yeah, and I'm also always surprised to, to realize that every time I meet someone who is in D.C., they don't usually come from D.C., they were usually born here. So when I do run into someone who was born here, I'm like, oh my God, how, how was it back in the day? Like, <laughs> I mean, D.C. is pretty much like the most, I don't know, I don't have like uh, the statistics to back this up, but I would say maybe the most gentrified city in the U.S., in a oh, sense. Definitely not. Uh, not no, I I live in St. Louis, Missouri. If you want to see gentrified, that's, uh, that's but uh, but St. Louis is like pretty big though. Like DC is so small, and it was like predominantly made up. But like it's not the city it once was in a sense. Like out of the one million people that live here, I guess or nine hundred thousand, five hundred thousand, five hundred thousand in the DC area. And I think it's like if you consider the entire DMV area, it's more yeah, than more like the DC metro area. So parts of Virginia, a little bit of Maryland. Okay, cool. And we're just talking about the podcast about the weather, right? In DC. And you lived in Chicago in the past and you're talking about how <laughs> Chicago weather is honest. <laughs> I just it found out funny. <laughs> Everyone thinks it's funny whenever I say Chicago winter is honest or Chicago weather is honest. It's like listen, you you know winter is coming in Chicago, so you brace for it, you know, you know it's you know, you know you gotta do stuff to like survive it. Yeah. And you know you're gonna you know, you're gonna see a beautiful summer that's gonna last for about three, four months. Yeah. Uh, well, in D.C., the weather is not consistent, right? It's like it snows now. It's like you have a snow magadon this year, and then the other year it doesn't even, like, 
snow. Correct. Um, and it's like it's either too humid. I feel like you cannot do anything outside, outdoors, at any given point in BC. You have like two months of good weather where you can do stuff outside, and then it's like either too hot or too cold. Chicago, at least I know that beautiful, you know, spring and summer is coming, so I can plan my my year ahead. Okay. What do you like to do during the summer? Are you out, outdoorsy or like just anywhere, like any city? Do you like I do love go hiking or? I do love nature, and um, you know, it's it's such a shame because DC is a very beautiful city. You have it's so it's so green compared to other cities. I was just in Toronto a couple of weeks ago, and I was surprised to see like they have no green spaces. It's like really, you know. In Toronto. Yeah. Really. Construction, construction, and oh yeah, I can tarmac, see that. Tarmac and all. <laughs> um, I can see that. But DC yeah. is like you know, you just drive half for half twenty minutes, and then you're in the middle of. A Small forest, which is Rock Creek Park, right? And the I work in Georgetown, which is pretty much in the south, let's say, the southwest side of the of the city. And it's like my trip to let's just call it a trip to my workplace is just you know I'm crossing a park, and it's really beautiful. Um, this means that you don't get to enjoy nature that much in DC because of the weather. I'm I, I don't tolerate heat very well, so it just gets <laughs> annoying in the summer and in the winter. How much snow can you take? <laughs> right, right, right. But I do recommend DC in Halloween on, on Halloween. And yeah, it's pretty cool. Uh, spring. St. Patty's Day is pretty cool too, I guess. When is St. Patty's Day? I was. Uh, when St. Patty's spring? Day? So I came back in March. I would say maybe late February, early March, I guess. It's pretty cool though. Because yeah, I know. I remember my last St. Patty's Day was when I I went to Sydney. So the day I landed was St. Patty's Day, and I went. I just went to drop my bags at home and straight from the airport, like a twenty-three hour flight, and I just went straight to party. <laughs> like you do. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, good memories. <laughs> well, speaking about the weather, you're originally from. Oh, you're from Romania. Yes. Right? How's the weather in Romania? Well, first, uh, let, let's just set the background. Uh, give us a little bit about Romania, like a description of where it is, like, I don't know, demographic stuff, number of people, language you've spoken, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so, Romania is a country, a beautiful country in Southeast Europe. Um, some people like to um, include it in the Balkans. It's not really Balkans, it's like at the at the border of the Balkans and uh, Eastern Europe, it's the only Latin country in Eastern Europe. We have our language is one of the closest one, if not the closest one, to Latin, to the original Latin language. We used to be a colony of the Roman Empire back in the day, so we got that you know as legacy. Um, our culture is a mixture of Latin and Slavic. Um, That's an interesting mix. It's a very interesting mix. The people call us explosive because we have really? the Latin and the Russian side oh, <laughs> all okay. combined into one. Gotcha. Um, it's an interesting. It's a region that has, and in general, Eastern Europe is a region that has had a really interesting history in the sense that Romania, even though it's a, a unified country now, used to um, used to be comprised of three, or it's, it's divided into three main regions, and all of each of these three regions has a different influence. The um, east side of Romania is very Russian Slavic. The south side is very Balkan Turkish. Even our food is very Turkish. And Transylvania, which is divided by the mountains and 
Oh wait, Transylvania is actually a real place. Transylvania is a real place. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> yeah, that, that part of the world is very German, very Austrian. It used okay. to be under the. That's a new uh, bit of information. I didn't even I know, know that. Right? Uh, I also, I also have another news for you. Uh, Dracula is not real. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was my next question. <laughs> I was going to ask that. Okay. Like, I, I, I want you to run like a red type of like you know screen flash news and all that. Dracula yeah. is not real. Yeah. Says the journalist. <laughs> I mean, it's funny how companies like Disney just tend to, I don't know, take stories from Africa, Lion King, Transylvania, Eastern Europe, um, the Polynesian culture, you know, just taking from bits and places and just making all the stories and creating these stereotypes. But is it, is there some sort of, um, I wouldn't say animosity, but some kind of like pushback to the way like the whole Transylvania Dracula thing is portrayed in Western culture or you guys don't really care about things like that? Well, Traditionally, or up until recently, Romania didn't invest that much in promoting their um, its image abroad. We didn't invest that much in like tourism. It was a country that was undergoing a transition. We used to be under a communist regime until, up until 1989, so we celebrate 30 years after the, from the fall of communism. So the country had other priorities in the meantime, just you know establishing a democracy and you know making sure that people were some sort of you know experience some level of happiness with their economic situation and all that. So reputation, sadly, has not been among the government's priorities so far. It has started to become a priority in the in recent years. So we didn't do much to sort of counterbalance this image of Romania being a spooky place, Transylvania having vampires and like garlic everywhere and all that. But, you know, there's no such thing as bad publicity, I think, to some extent. And it's not like we're associated with something bad. I mean, Dracula is, you know... Um, fictional character and I mean Scotland I think has a Loch Ness monster or something so everyone has a yeah everyone seems like, to have something feature. yeah um but uh, this being said there's there's so much to see in Transylvania that is not connected to like you know myths and all that um so yeah it's a it's one I think it was it was the CNN who voted Transylvania one of the most beautiful regions in, in Europe I mean, now I'm, I'm really intrigued because I've always wanted to go to Europe. I haven't been. I've always wanted to go to Prague. But now, definitely, I, I probably would look for a way to head to Transylvania as well, <laughs> <laughs> just for that experience. So, yeah, pretty interesting. It's starting to be really well connected and uh, we have a lot of tourists. And one of the uh, one of our main visitors, annual visitors, is Prince Charles, who has property there. Really? Pretty much an entire village there. Um, in Transylvania, and he's uh, he's always promoting the local culture, and you know he's an ambassador of Transylvania. So, oh, it's nice. And how how many people? What's the population of Romania? How many people live there? Mm, that's a good question. So, um, I think the most recent census, if I'm not mistaken, listed like Romania at around 18 million people. But also uh, about four million people live abroad. So I'm not sure if it's out of the pool of 18 million people, or in addition to the 18 million people we have. Wait, did you say four or four, four million people? Oh, four million people um, live abroad. Okay. It, it has a really high migration rate, and it's pretty hard to tell how many people who move abroad to Western Europe also come back. There's no like you know clear study to like sort of paint a clear picture of how you know migration looks like from Romania, but um, we do move, move around a lot. What's the popular country people uh, move to or travel to in Romania? Um, from moving, I think it's mainly countries that perform well economically and also 
that might be some somewhat connected to technology. Romania has been a an outsourced spot in Eastern Europe that has provided a lot of STEM talent to Western Europe. So are the main countries that people look at are Germany, uh, UK, UK. Uh, we call London a pipeline to Silicon Valley. This is kind of like the, the path of a Romanian engineer. They move to Germany or like London, and then they are moved to Silicon Valley. Area. Oh, interesting. What else? Um, we used to have, after we joined the EU in 2007, we used to have low-skill migration pretty much directed at uh, Latin, other Latin countries in, in Europe, and that's because of language. It's easier for Romanian to learn Spanish than you know, learning German. So we had a massive migration wave towards Spain, Italy, at one point France. And I think before 2007, Romanians were looking at Canada and the U.S. Yeah. Because of, you know, economic opportunities and also language skills. English is a language that we learn or people learn from a young age in Romania. So it's easy to navigate an Anglo-Saxon environment. So what's the traditional, uh, I'm not, what's like the lingua franca of Romania? Uh, you said people learn English, uh, but what's the language mostly spoken? Is it Romanian? Uh, I guess I did some, some people speak uh, Hungarian, I think. Yeah, um, so remember I told you that Romania is pretty much divided into regions and different influences. Correct. So um, Transylvania, which used to be part of the Austria, Austrian-Hungarian Empire, still has a legacy with, or it has uh, Hungarian communities, and they you either learn Hungarian as a second language or maybe Hungarian is their only language. I don't think it's predominant in Transylvania, but you know there is a, a strong uh, Hungarian influence there. Russian used to be a language that people used to speak, uh, mainly our grandparents. Uh, so I was a generation that was born in the 80s, and you know my grandparents are the, the 30s generation, so they used to learn Russian in school. And from my parents' generation, let's say the 50s generation, it was mainly French and English. French so and Romanian English. is like the main, the, the national language, but uh, children start learning a first foreign language in second grade, which is like what, when you're eight. So wow. that's usually French. It used to be a tradition that we have we have to learn French um, because of our connection with the royal house of. I mean, uh, we used to be a, a monarchy at some point, and French was like the official language in court. And then in sixth grade, which is when you're like what eleven, uh, they usually start learning English, or we used to. You, you, you can you can have a switch. You can start learning English first and then French. French later. And then high school, you can learn the third la- a third language if you're interested. College, the fourth. It depends wow. on what your. Uh, so all through your life, you just keep acquiring all these languages. Yeah, and uh, you know it makes a lot of sense because Romania, Romanian is a language that's only spoken in Romania and Moldova, which is our neighbor, our eastern neighbor. So you cannot really move around with just Romanian language skills. You need something else. So it's kind of a given that you will learn some Latin languages because it's part of your roots. Uh, but also English because, come on, English is everywhere. I mean, yeah, you, you, yeah. you use a personal computer and you have to know how to like navigate uh, stuff written in, in English. So, yeah, and I think traditionally Eastern Europe has been pretty strong in languages. Like it's it's it doesn't bode well to not know foreign languages there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've been trying to, unfortunately, I speak only English, a bit of Pidgin English, which is kind of like a, a local uh, language uh, back home where I come from. Uh, but I've always wanted to learn, you know, other languages like French and Spanish. I downloaded this app called Babbel, uh, but I wasn't able oh, yeah. to, you know, I, I guess it's easier to learn it when you're much younger. Or some people say maybe watch foreign movies and, you know, 
with like subtitles and maybe you get to learn that way. I, I can tell you some funny stories about how I learned Spanish and Italian. Oh, <laughs> was, okay. <laughs> I was, uh, so back in the 90s, we got, after the fall of communism, we also got, you know, more in contact with the Western culture. And one of the first things that uh, children got to... Wait, the what content? Sorry? You, you said... The, 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 the Western content. Oh, okay, like okay. Anything coming from the West. Okay. The Western side of Europe. Um... And we got cable. And uh, so I remember we had cartoons from like 8 a.m. to noon every day. And they were usually Italian channels that were broadcasting Italian cartoons. And so children, because, you know, they were very small, like, what, what, what can you do when you're, like, when you're three or four? You're just going to, you know, play with your dolls and like stare at the TV. Yeah. Um, so because we were watching so many cartoons, if you expose a young child to a foreign culture from, you know, three or four years of age, at some point they're going to start assimilating and accumulating a lot of information about that culture and about that language. Correct. So I got to um, to be fluent in Italian by the age of five wow. without knowing that. I just realized that when I met a real Italian, it came so natural to just talk to him in Italian. And my wow. parents were like, what? <laughs> what are you? <laughs> uh, so I didn't, I, did, I, ne I never took like classes. I never took like lessons in any kind of like, in Italian. And then Spanish, I learned Spanish by watching um, Latin American soap operas when I was growing up. My grandma was very big yeah, on... Those are the best kinds. Yep. yep. What are your favorite ones? My, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I didn't have favorites, but I remember there was a lot of drama involved, a lot of slapping, the... The, I mean, the, the, the woman was very aggressive to the guy because the guy was cheating. The whole, the whole like, Latin drama. Yeah. Um, but uh, that's how I learned, you know, uh, we also had subtitles. So it was easy for me to, like, compare what I was hearing, listening to, like, what was uh, written on, on the screen. So, yeah. So a couple of years into this, you know, process, I became, you know, I, I started, you know, knowing Spanish. And it's, it's shocking to me that even now I have, you know, Spanish-speaking friends. I understand every single word they're saying as long as it's not jargon or very technical. Yeah. Or I even go to conferences and people can actually talk about macroeconomics in Spanish. And I'm like, yeah, sure, you know, I, I yeah, understand. People, you guys are like, what? <laughs> people don't even understand macroeconomics in English. <laughs> How much more in the so it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's really surprising to see what language exposure does to you. And I don't think it's a matter of age. I think, you know, if you just... If you would start living in a foreign, you know, country with a foreign culture, I think you could put a bit of effort into effort, it right. just by being immersed in that culture. But, but some people might just have that natural affinity to just absorb languages because exactly. you personally, like, you speak six, you understand six different languages. Yeah. Now that's not usual. Like some people understand maybe two. Yeah, but I'm also cheating because you Romanian... are. <laughs> okay, tell me what's the cheat code. <laughs> so Romanian is a Latin language, yeah. and five of the languages that I speak are Latin. You know, so it's not like I started. So what are the Chinese. five languages? Italian, Spanish, Portuguese, French, and Romanian. Five Latin languages, right? Okay. Um, I'm not fluent in all of them, but it's it's easy to navigate a language that is very much connected to your native tongue. Correct. Well, again, I don't speak any any language that doesn't use the Latin alphabet. I wish I spoke either Russian, Arabic, or Chinese. I think it's it's pretty cool to learn uh, one of these languages, especially nowadays. It's very useful to learn to you know understand the world for those languages. Yeah, Mandarin is is starting to be a big thing. Yeah, yeah, it, it really is. You know, so I think this is a good strategy. If you start learning foreign languages, start learning languages that are connected to yours. 
And that's how you're going to sound very smart because you're going to speak a lot of languages. Okay, 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 okay. I guess so. In my case, maybe I'm sorry with pigeon English. I could do some tree, which is Ghanaian. I think from English, the uh, it's pretty easy if you're a, a native Anglo-Saxon, you know, language speaker. I think it's easy to learn German. Really. Germans speak really good English, and I noticed that my uh, British friends just find German to be a language that they can navigate pretty easily. But for me, it's really hard. You know what? That makes sense because we have a couple of uh, Nigerian soccer players who play in Germany, and you know, within like a season, they were giving interviews in German and stuff like. And there we go. Yeah. And soccer is also a big thing in Romania, right? But in Europe, generally, with UEFA, but in Romania particularly, are you, do you follow soccer? Are you a soccer person? Listen, my, my father is very unhappy with me because I don't. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I do to the extent that, you know, if a major team plays or if there's a world championship. What do you yeah. consider a major team? I know, dum, Barcelona dum, 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 dum. versus, you know. <laughs> oh, she said Barcelona. <laughs> United I thought you were going to, you know, mention like a, a local Romanian team like Cluj or something. No, I'm not. I'm not very big on uh, Romanian soccer unless okay. they play. You know, the national team plays with someone, and that's because the um, soccer is not. It, it's still a, a legacy in Romania, but it's not as famous as it used to be. I feel like people are very much focused on tennis nowadays because we have really? Khalid, Juan, Roland Garros, and Wimbledon. So, sorry, what's your name? A Simona Halep. Simona Halep? Yeah, she's okay. the number one tennis player in the world right now, and she's oh, wow. Romanian. So oh, everyone okay. is there's a huge hype around, you know, Simona Halep and everything that she does. Um, Shout out Simona Halep. She beat Serena Williams, which is like, what? How there, we go. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. There we go. So she became like this national star in Romania. While, you know, soccer, because of fewer investments, I feel like it's not as, um, there's not a, uh, as big of a hype around it as it used to be. Now in the 90s, soccer was everything in Romania. Like, my father would cry watching soccer games. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, sorry. I mean, that, and that's a good thing of uh, with um, organizations like UEFA, you know, in a way. I mean, they have their own fair share of scandals, you know, with the FIFA thing and all that. Right. But, you know, just watching from, like, Nigeria, you get to watch, like, the Super Cup or the, or the Champions League, and, you know, seeing these popular English teams, because we follow the Premier League, but during the Champions League, we see them travel to all these places and, you know, sometimes get defeated by uh, the FC Coach or, you know, I don't know, like, uh, <laughs> Dynamo or something. You're welcome. I'll, I'll be like, what? What? <laughs> How? <laughs> just like, you know, the Serena thing. I'll be, I'll be like, what the hell? What's going on here? And, you know, from there, we started, like, you know, getting exposed to the culture. So, I guess best way to uh, assimilate other cultures, language, which we talked about. Um, sports is also a good thing. Food, right. music is also one thing. So, oh, that's a good one. What, what kind of music do you listen to? Um, you have from Romania. Well, not necessarily from Romania, but what what artists, uh, what kind of songs, what genres of music are you personally interested in? Then we can talk about maybe the larger Romanian context. Um, I'm not like very picky with music. Okay. Um, I think I can. So you just like good music. Yeah, okay. I can navigate pretty much, you know, any type of music. I think I'm not a very big fan fan of metalcore, anything that's very aggressive. Okay. Um, because I had my uh, when I was younger, I used to do a lot of. I mean, I used to listen to a lot of metalcore, and I was like, oh, why would? How young is young? I don't know, early twenties, maybe. Okay. But. No, it's uh, it's not a, a favorite genre of mine. But other than that, I think you know I can navigate pretty much everything. I'm not that picky. 
It's not because it's not noise. My mother is actually a piano teacher professor, so she's mm. uh, she instilled in me this this passion for anything classic. Mm. Um, so sometimes I would pop up some Mozart while I do my wow. <laughs> okay. my tours around the house. This is my my mother's legacy. So I can I think the good side of things is that you know you uh, as Europeans tend to combine both you know more traditional music and classical music with you know the newer contemporary artists. I was actually joking with a friend of mine that, you know, in Vienna, people... Austria? Yeah. People as old as 20 or something, they can just waltz in the street, and they, it's not considered anything old-fashioned to waltz in, in the public. So area. waltz is dancing in the street, right? Is that what it means? Waltz is a type of dance that is a ballroom type of dance. Yeah. Like, uh, like kings and queens used yeah. to dance in... I don't know. In, in the, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, it's very... Uh, it's a tradition yeah so so when you say waltz in the street like you can pretty much waltz is a, is a so i think whenever you say waltz you think something that older people might do it's like a, a very sophisticated type of dance uh because it represents uh, like some sort of tradition etiquette it's very um royal let's say so you wouldn't expect a 20 year old to waltz in the middle of the street well, yeah. they do that in Vienna, and I, I noticed that, you know, in Vienna, people just, you know, listen to the opera for fun, and it's, they're not older people. You, you don't see an older demographic, you know, accessing this kind of, like, culture. Uh, while in the States, if I tell anyone that I want to go to the opera, they're like, where are you, 90? <laughs> <laughs> like, well, no. <laughs> That's true. I mean, I was talking with uh, one of the directors in the Kennedy Center here in D.C., and they were talking about how they are trying, to, they are struggling to get like the younger crowds into the Kennedy Center, and you know they had to hire a Q-Tip, who is like a legendary hip hop like a rapper and a producer, <laughs> to like have a program to attract young people to the Kennedy Center. And meanwhile, you know, thousands of miles away in Vienna, people are listening to the opera in their yeah, teens. Yeah, so. yeah. This is one of the things again that I miss about Europe. You know, this this mash of old versus new, old and new, without labeling anyone as being antique because you know they're just uh, listening to the opera. So, yeah. Having said that, because tech is considered like more or less like culture of the young. Like, you know, we have young programmers, young people interested. I talked about people using London as a pipeline to Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. Is it widely accepted technology in, I will not say Europe in general, but let's say Romania, um, are more and more people, businesses and the government relying on technology solutions to push uh, economic activity and things like that, or do people more or less go outside Romania to have to look for opportunities in technology? That's a good question. I feel like Romania, as as part of a former communist bloc that emphasized a lot on uh, STEM skills um, and industrializing everything back in the day, um, I think we have a tradition with praising people for having any kind of scientific mathematical skills. So if this kind of, you know, basic education has always been pretty, uh, let's say, praised and raved about. Like, in, if you're smart, you're going to study math, most likely. <laughs> uh, or, you know, there's this label attached to someone who's good at math, like they're probably smart. Um, when it comes to technology, we had, you know, decent schools in terms of STEM education, but I think most people who have who have performed well in technology have been self-taught people. And this is, I think this is a characteristic of Eastern Europeans. 
resources are limited compared to other parts of the, in other parts of the world. So people just you know have to be resourceful with whatever it is that they have at hand. So you're going to see a lot of innovation and people improvising on things that you know you just take for granted here in the states because you just have them. And I think one of them has been education. It's pretty it's pretty common to hear about you know some sort of guy who made it big at Google who just started you know, coding by himself or like deconstructing a computer back in the 90s to see what's inside and then putting it back together. Yeah. I, I don't I don't feel the government is doing enough. I don't think I don't feel the government is doing enough to uh, attract and retain talent in Romania. Uh, this is why I think we're losing a pretty important part of our of our uh, workforce to countries in Eastern Western Europe and uh, the US. Granted, it's also very challenging to compete with the big tech giants. So, you know, if you're a young engineer in Romania and you get an offer from somewhere in tech company in Bucharest and also an offer from Google and Mountain View, probably going to go for Google because, you know, it's yeah. um, not necessarily, but, you know, there's there's a lot of incentives, you know, being part of a major tech scene in the Bay Area where, you know, even Western Europe. Do the major tech companies have offices? And what they call them? Is it Fang or something? Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google? Do they have offices in? Some of them do, but it's I don't know too much about this, this topic in, in the sense that I don't know exactly what these offices do. Some of them outsource specific activities to um, Eastern Europe. Some of them actually build technology. But I think it's always, you know, safe to say that if you want to be involved in more high-end uh, innovation, you probably want to be, you know, outside of Romania, somewhere in the West. Gotcha. Okay, that's interesting. And I was just going through like your LinkedIn profile uh, before the episode, and you are—you you tend to have like a background, like an intersection between technology, media, and economics. In a sense, uh, I, I see that you, you, you had your first degree in economics in Bucharest. Uh, you, you have an MBA from Chicago. You have a degree in media from Missouri. You've worked in all these media organizations from print media to TV media. And you've also dabbled in tech. So I, I want to get like a sense of your journey because I'm also like interested. I'm very interested in like financial inclusion, but I'm also interested in like emerging technology like blockchain, but I'm also interested in media. And, you know, so I, I'm just interested in your journey. You are stuck now. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, so kind of like you. So maybe I'm asking this question for myself, actually. Like, you what? some career advice. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> what this podcast is all about. <laughs> yeah, man. This podcast is about career advice, man. I'm just masking it. <laughs> uh, so first off, I don't have an MBA from Chicago. I'm not sure what. Uh, oh. I was, um, I had a company that was incubated in, in Chicago and also, um, I took some, um, a course in design thinking at, um, Northwestern University in Chicago. I wish I had an MBA. I think MBAs are, are very good to have, but, um, uh, it's not too late. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, my, my background has been, to some extent, I, I want to think that it has been consistent. Wait, wait, let's start from here. When you were young, what did you want to do? Um, let's say when you were like watching the Italian cartoons, <laughs> <laughs> what did you see yourself doing in the future? You were, you know, staying as far away from football okay. as you could. All right, <laughs> yeah. all right. Um, when I was very, very young, I was under the heavy influence of my grandmother who worked for the um, uh, National Court of, of Romania. and The National was... Court, is that like the judiciary? Yeah. Okay. Like the, the Supreme Court of the country. Okay. 
And she was the assistant of the guy who was running the Supreme Court at the time. For a few years, she's done that. And she was, she had the best stories, you know, the best cases and, you know, kinds of like, I was always, I was always a storyteller. So anything, any profession that had to do with storytelling and, you know, to some extent, law does have a lot to do with, you know, people's lives and stories. I was fascinated by that. So when I was very young, like five or something, I wanted to run the Supreme Court of Romania. Then I dropped that one because, nice. you know, it didn't work out. <laughs> and then I wanted to go to law school, but um, that's when I was about 10. Then I realized, I don't know, you know, there's there's a lot of things that you need to read there and stuff that, you know, the, the, that language is very heavy. So maybe I should just, you know, be friends with lawyers along the way instead of actually studying law. I actually have a lot of lawyer friends, so this is, uh, it worked out for me. And actually, in in uh, in middle school, I started fantasizing about being a journalist. I was working for oh, school right, magazines. Right in middle yeah. school, okay. I was eleven or ten or eleven or twelve, and one of my extracurricular activities was uh, I was a reporter for a, for a school's magazine. So I was interviewing professors. I was interviewing I know. Uh, school alumni, and it was I, I got to write in both Romanian and French. Uh, so it was very, I, I like this, this, um, this life that, this professional life that allowed me to ask a lot of questions that I wouldn't have dared to ask if I would have been, you know, on my own, just, you know, representing myself. Sorry, I, quick question. Were you an only child? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. That explains some of that. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I think so. I, I was a very shy kid. So, you know, being a reporter, even today, it, uh, so being a reporter, even today, it, it helps with, you know, overcoming any kind of like obstacle so if i want to ask a question it's like you're not asking the question for yourself you're just representing the media outlet so <laughs> if they reject you or they start cursing you they don't curse you they curse the media outlets <laughs> gotcha um, that's a good way to look at it <laughs> i mean it, it is actually what was happening with reporters it's not it's not personal it's not directed at you you're just a representative of your you, you represent a specific you know a cause or a media outlet or whatever so yeah so i ever since i was like 11 or 12 i wanted to be a journalist and somehow it this happened when I became when I turned eighteen or nineteen. Actually, I got my first job in um, as a reporter for national television in, in Romania. And well, but before then, you, you you studied economics. I went to a to a high school that was focusing on business. Okay. Um, that's because I couldn't figure out we, we had no journalism program in Romania, and I don't think there's a journalism major in in high school anywhere in the world. I mean, I don't know, but I presume it's not a common thing to to study when you're in high school and. So I did a bit of business and then I went to a business school, but after I graduated high school and I started this uh, business college, I realized that I, I missed journalism a lot and somehow I wanted to get close to this, to this profession. So I just, um, I applied to some jobs and I was lucky enough to get it. And I was, uh, let's just say smart about it because I was using my business education and business knowledge and mm. I'm going to be a business reporter. Nice, <laughs> good play. <laughs> so I started my first job in uh, when Lehman Brothers fell, with the the bank when the financial crisis. Oh, that, started. that was a good time to be a journalist. Lots and of stories and focusing on economics and business. So I could like translate basic concepts. Business journalism was not a thing back then. It wasn't like people didn't have skills in business or didn't understand business. And so I I could I could match these two these two uh, worlds together both my education and business and also uh, my passion for writing and storytelling and um, all that so it worked out fine um, we built one of the first platforms dedicated to the economic crisis explaining the economic crisis of Romania and there were a lot of things that were happening around the world with, you know based on the economic crisis so 
you would not run out, run out of stories because of um, because of that well sad event. Correct. Um, so I've done that for a bit, for a few years, and then I went into magazines. I worked for a couple of magazines as a freelancer in Romania uh, after having done television, and um, I ended up in a wonderful team in Esquire's team in Romania. Esquire is a um, Esquire magazine. Esquire magazine is a, is a magazine that's owned by by Hearst in the United States. Has a bunch of like, Hearst, like the publishing company. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And they have a bunch of international editions. Romania was one of them. We had a we had a really cool, amazing team that hosted me for five years, almost five years. And uh, yeah, and afterwards I left for the states. I got a Fulbright scholarship to continue my education in the media. I was very curious about media technology, how we can use tech. And that's when I started becoming when I become interested in uh, when I became interested in technology and the media. Like I was fascinated by how the media industry was really struck by um, the financial the economic crisis. It's one of the industries that suffered the most after in the aftermath of this of this. Um, global economic crisis and um i saw technology i saw that you know people in my industry were a bit reluctant to use technology in any, in any shape or form it was yeah they fought it, fought it for a long time yeah yeah they, they fought it and it's you know it, it has this reputation of journalists don't like to experiment with a lot of things they don't like to experiment failure and technology that's that's what the technology world is based on you know try and fail and start over and all that uh, journalism is a much more rigid profession. You, you don't you don't just test things at the cost of your readership or you know credibility. So you got to be very precise, and it's very it's a very rigid profession, and that's why it's it got to be credible along the way. So I just wanted to you know study more things about how you can you know embed technology in journalistic processes to make it more efficient, make it faster, making a beat against social media bloggers and all that. So I spent two years doing my master's here. And then I moved to DC to work for the Washington Post as a business and tech reporter. And now I cover uh, international technology for US News and World Report, which is an international magazine. It gives me this opportunity of looking at innovation around the world, like nice. kind of cool things countries are doing with technology, stuff that doesn't stem up. Also from all over the world. All over the world, yeah. Did you, did you get to cover at all? And this is just a random question. Did you get to hear about or cover? contribute to the Jumia story. Uh, I don't know if you heard about Jumia. Uh, it was like the first African company. And we're not video, but I'm doing air quotes. <laughs> the first African company, in quote, to be listed on the New York Stock Exchange is like, it's like Amazon. So it's like an e-commerce platform. This? this year, last year or this year? I think it was early this year, not like six months ago or five months ago. Interesting. Something. Yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty, you know, there was this uh, controversy of if it's really an African company because, you know, most of its staff and its development in Europe, it was registered in Dubai, all that stuff. I was just China or... <laughs> Look, it's a long story, but <laughs> I was just you know interested to know. But what countries, uh, what what um, businesses have you like featured or covered? Have you found interesting from what countries? So my my beat is um, I look at the macro side of things, oh, okay. think national strategies in innovation or technology, such as the GDPR, the General Data Protection Privacy Rule. Uh, yeah, that's a Europe, Europe. thing. Uh, thing China's national AI strategy. Yeah. Thing the trade trade wars between China and the US yep. uh, and the impact of technology. 
Um, I covered stories in Korea. For instance, Korea had this really cool strategy, I think, two years ago, I want to say, or one, maybe one year ago. They wanted, the government came up with this idea of, you know, we are one of the most innovative countries in the world. Korea is one of the most innovative and technolog technologically advanced country in the world. We're not just going to, we're going to stop producing technology just for the sake of producing technology. We're going to look at actually society needs and then start building things with that specific idea in mind. Oh, like, wow. Which is, so they, they call it a social innovation strategy. Which Interesting. Is very cool, you know, it's like, you, you, because uh, one and of And this is being done in Korea. Yeah. One, one of the critics, uh, the, the, um, uh, the, the criticism that is um, that is usually related to the, to, the, to the Bay Area, to the Silicon Valley, is that you know the Bay Area produces so much technology, but do you guys know who you're producing who you're, who you're producing this amount of technology for? That's like the Yo app, right? An app that just says Yo. Yeah, it's and like those beer bombs like... or whatever. Like, who, who <laughs> well, if, eventually they get to pivot most of those stupid ideas into some of these companies, and it makes it ends up becoming like a Gmail or a Snapchat filter or one thing or something. Listen, no one is arguing against Silicon Valley being the, the biggest tech producer in the world uh, mm -hmm. and doing an amazing job. Obviously, it's, it's supporting our economy, but there is something to be said about how well connected are innovators with real world problems. Because um, you know, what is technology? We don't just build technology for the sake of you know building things, but for solving problems, right? So the more detached you are from real world problems, the less impact your technology is going to have on our on our lives. Well, that's fair. Um, and you can't be more detached than a straight white male in Silicon Valley. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Privilege. I mean, you said it. <laughs> well, it's all um, good. I can give you an example of a, of a story that I thought was very, um, very cool. And it, uh, one of the things I'm, that I'm most fascinated, fascinated about is how we define innovation around the world. What's innovative for you might not be innovative for my country or a tool that you and I are using on a daily basis that's not considered innovation anymore, can save lives and, you know, re re bring more order in terms of economic inequality in other parts of the world. And yeah, that reminds me of Clayton Christensen, the Harvard professor. Right. Talks about innovation a lot, but sorry, as you were saying. Um, so I did this story a couple of uh, months ago. I met this uh, Pakistani entrepreneur in DC who was telling me he was working on um, a project that would allow him to put offline uh, low-skill work, blue-collar workers in Pakistan uh, online. Mm. And his idea so like was a LinkedIn for he adapted Angie's list or like LinkedIn for for blue collar workers. So his, his story was something like, you know, every time you need some, you know, uh, uh, a housekeeper, a mechanic, someone who would do, who would do like chores around the house, uh, he was telling me that in Pakistan, it's, it's very common to just go to a public square and just, you know, see people waiting for you to just stop by and ask them for work. So it's a very informal type of culture, right? It's prone to corruption, to a lot of wrongdoing and all that. So it's, it's not transparent at all. So what he did, he partnered with, and these people also don't, don't have access to, to the internet. Like it's not, internet uh, penetration rate is pretty, uh, pretty low in Pakistan. So he uh, partnered with telecom companies because phone penetration rate is very high. Um, and he created this database, which is very similar to LinkedIn, that people could, blue-collar workers could subscribe to by just sending a text message. So whenever they were paying their phone bill or something, they would get instructions at the class to how to subscribe and list their skills on this platform without being an active online user. And the other people who were like, you know, requesting service, requesting, requesting work on the other side of the, the platform, 
um, would just go through their database, find that particular worker that they were interested in, and just contact them uh, via phone. Um, so you're putting this, you know, huge chunk of the population that didn't have internet access on a platform, a centralized, uh, giving them jobs, making, you know, uh, it actually improving, you know, their, their economic status. So it's, it's, it's baby steps, but it's one form of innovation. innovation. You wouldn't think you're yeah. using LinkedIn as a tool that you and I are using on a daily yeah. basis for whatever purpose. Um, you wouldn't think this kind of tool could bring about so much change to people's lives in Pakistan, right? Yeah. It's kind of like the USSD technology in Eastern Africa and other parts of Africa used for like mobile money. And right. It's like basic text message USSD technology with like now the encryption is stronger, but it started off as like very basic stuff and more or less created the whole economy. Now in PESA is like what seventy percent of the Kenyan GDP or something. I think I read that somewhere, but yeah, it's pretty interesting. So yeah. and you do these you do this for several countries. Um I do this for uh, yeah for regions. I, I'm not focusing on a particular region, I'm just mm. you know, chasing stories. It's very hard to be to cover international news yeah. while you're based in DC. We work with a series of contributors around the world, so they also provide a lot of content, local content on you know what's what's important for them. But yeah, it's um it's been quite a ride. And I you know part of my job is to talk to a bunch of insanely smart people in Washington DC who work with think tanks for the government to explain you know macro concepts. Mm. And yeah, it's a it's a mash of you know storytelling on the ground reporting and very macro abstract concepts that just impact us all. Ah, man, I mean, it's good that we meet now. I don't know how many times you, um, I don't know if you've, you know, had stories from like Africa at all, but, you know, a couple of countries have like, you know, growing tech scenes. So if there's anything like I, I find interesting, I'll just shoot it. Them, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. Of I mean, course. Nigeria, <laughs> I mean, you know. <laughs> Nigeria, uh, Kenya, definitely. Um, Ghana, too, is, is like coming up. Uh, South Africa has always been there. Uh, but, you know, if there's anything I like finding interesting, I can just like shoot it your way and, you know, who knows, it might be like definitely, yeah. the story of Please the year too. or something. Please, too. I'm always looking for, for interesting stories and it's it's challenging to cover everything, but, you know, whenever there's a, there's a good story that tells me, that, that tells a bigger story of, you know, how the world is impacted by technology, I think it's yeah. And how, how easy, is it frustrating to be a journalist in this generation? Because one, the news cycle is a lot shorter than it used to be. So the news cycle is like, like 24 hours news cycle, more or less. And two, it kind of seems like everyone is a journalist now. Like I have my podcast, some people have YouTube channels, some people are become like the head of the New York Times all by themselves on Twitter, <laughs> you know, and the issue of fake news. So, so many people are seemingly encroaching your profession and there's so much pressure on you for this 24-hour news cycle. Is it frustrating at all or the love and passion for the craft is just uh, oiling the machine in a way? I don't know. What's it like for you? Well, it is true that, you know, as we were talking before, technology has deeply impacted uh, the media. And one of the major uh, changes is this making every platform open for any kind of distribution platform open for everyone. Everyone can have a blog, everyone can have, you know, a YouTube channel. And to some extent, it's, it's empowering. And it's nice that we, you know, we, we get to do things with um, less restrictions, fewer restrictions or uh, less, uh, fewer resources. 
for instance, I was just comparing when I was in school, you can actually shoot documentary films right now on, on just your iPhone. Well, yeah. they was just super restrictive and super expensive to, you know, to shoot a piece of footage. But this being said, it's also terrifying when I see people who are not trained in distributing information having such huge impact on, on other people's lives. It's, it's one thing to have a blog and it's one thing to have a podcast that has, let's say, limited influence. It's another thing to see people just skyrocketing online and becoming, you know, voice or God knows what without ever having taken a class in ethics and the impact of the things that they're seeing online and credibility. There's a lot of things that journalists are trained in that we don't flaunt and we don't talk about. You, I sometimes see that people just have this impression that, oh, anyone can write for a newspaper. Or if you're just talented for writing, you can be a journalist. There's a lot of other things that go into this profession that you, you know, put in a lot of hard work to, to become truly skilled. And more often than not, journalists are not just recruited based on their, their expertise and skills, but also on their credibility, on their reputation. It doesn't, it will never look, you know, uh, it will never um, be an asset of yours to to know that, you know, an editor has had to rewrite a bunch of stories that you have done or like you had 100,000 corrections filed in the last year. Wait, they uh, track corrections? Sorry? They track corrections in the field of journalism? Well, if, if someone, um, if you need to file a correction, it's usually going to be attached to the article. It's either going to be printed in a uh, following edition or you're going to see online like an update or a correction or something. Yeah. Um, and, you know, whoever wants to hire you afterwards, they can actually look at your byline and see if there, there are corrections attached to that, uh, to that. I don't know any bloggers, or I don't know too many bloggers who would, you know, just publish a whole article about how they screwed up the previous time or something. And it's because transparency has comes at, or lack of transparency comes at a, with a, at a very high cost in the media. Uh, and you're trained to be transparent and honest because your, your career depends on that. I mean, talking about being transparent and honest, and I'm about to play devil's advocate here, right? Now, I can see how what you're saying makes sense, especially like in the print industry, but in, I don't know what they call the TV industry. The broadcast. Broadcast, exactly. That's something different. So you have um, these uh, publications like the New York Times, you know, Time Magazine, where one can make the arguments where, you know, there's integrity based on those kinds of stories they've broken out, uh, you know, Watergate, Nicaragua story, you know, things like that in the past. But broadcast journalism almost seems to, like, be solely catering for the needs of the advertisers, and they themselves seem to have their own agenda. It's the CNN versus Fox effect. You know, kind of thing. So they seem to be pushing their own agenda. So some people might argue, why not just give it to the hands of the people? So even though there's a whole bunch of stuff going on and there's a blog, like on the macro level, there'll still be, you know, a related story. Even though some people might argue that you can engineer a story to go viral and fake news and all that. But on the macro level, it's still better for it to be in their hands and, and trust certain gatekeepers to be tasked with distributing information. I think so. Um. I, I usually, I mean, I usually try to listen to both sides and listen, there's no such thing as a perfect industry. The media industry has its problems and just has, just as, you know, doctors sometimes give you the, the wrong diagnosis, it can happen the same thing in the media. I'm not, I'm not saying we don't have issues, but I think it's very dangerous 
to live in a world where you don't trust the media. Because my immediate reaction would be like, what would be your, your alternative source of information? How would you make sure that that kind of information is accurate? With media, at least, you know, they, they cite sources in their articles, there's references, there's, you know, if you would really want to fact check a piece of information in the media, you would have the tools at hand to do that. While in any other less, you know, standardized professions or standardized endeavors of, you know, media endeavors, it's, it's really challenging to do that. So I'm not sure if I'm answering your question. If, if the question is, should we not, should we expect the media to never be, to, to never be guilty of anything, to never be, you know, to, to, to never go through any kind of like mistakes? I think that's not fair. We that's not realistic. Make, no, we expect, we expect every profession to make mistakes in, in some capacity. But if you ask me, you know, should you distrust the media altogether? Because, listen, corrections have been filed since the beginning of times. And um, people not getting things right has been, has been around since, like, the beginning of times as well. But to, like, make a profession that whose, whose main purpose is public information, public service, less credible because of rumors, I think it's, it's dangerous for us all. Maybe the current model is even, like, the most suitable model in a way, because now all sides are empowered. It's kind of like the Swedish uh, military, right? They have a small military, but in times of war, all virtually all citizens have been trained and stuff. Or like the Israeli, maybe a, a year after school, you get trained in the military. So in times of war, they can like draft normal citizens and add them to the army. So maybe it's cool that the traditional media institutions are still there and it's necessary they continue to function. But just on the flip side, now normal people have also been empowered. So maybe those two institutions can, like, check each other and, you know, oh, if yeah. it doesn't create chaos, <laughs> you know. And also, you know, we we got we, we as media people have to rethink what media institutions look like. You're not, you're not a journalist just because you're working. I mean, you're, you're, you're not a journalist only because you work for the New York Times or only if you work for the New York Times. I think, you know, journalists, journalists and reporters, um, as I said before, being good writers and reporters, I think it's very important for them to have some sort of expertise in the field that they're covering. I mean, the, the, the best writers out there are the most knowledgeable about their particular beat. So if these experts nowadays get to have a media voice coming from other fields, not traditional media fields, I'm all about it as long as they also get some training in, you know, accuracy of information and standards and, you know, uh, ethics. Um, I think it's, to some extent, easier to train an expert to become a writer than to train a writer to become an expert in something. Um, it's easier it's, to train an expert to become a writer. If you're a good a writer, to I mean, okay, writer to the extent of you, know, you, being able, you being able to write a piece of news, you know, not like a book or anything. But yeah. if you're an expert in, pol in politics or policy or whatever. With some training, you would be able, and editing, of course, you would be able to put together a piece that's coherent and, you know, sends out a, a, a message. While, you know, for a writer, it's much challenging to gain this kind of expertise. And we, obviously, we, we rely on outside sources, so outside sources. But what I'm saying is that there is middle ground. You know, it's, it's, you, you can make, you can make both things work as long as we all operate by the same standards and ethics. You know, it's, um, it's good to have, I mean, the media has used expert voices since forever, since, you know, we just, you know, tend to label it differently. Sometimes they're op-eds, sometimes they're, you know, essays. But, um, yeah, I, I, I don't fear, I don't fear journalism switching or moving to other platforms. I fear people just not being as rigorous as the media used to be in terms of, uh, with accuracy and ethics. 
if these two requirements are met, I think, you know, the more people who, you know, work as journalists in some capacity, the better for us, right? More information. Okay. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting take. And again, we're just like two people sitting in a room somewhere in DC <laughs> trying to have a casual conversation about stuff like this. It just happens that we're being recorded. Um so um of course you're yeah, not speaking on behalf of any publication you currently or previously worked for. Oh, right. or just having like a, a random conversation. Uh but let's talk about you some more. Um so besides uh your career in media and your education in, in business and economics, you've also like delved into technology first and in the sense that you were part of like an incubator and you guys actually came out with an app called Recordly. So I want I want to break this down into three segments. Who ideated that particular application Recordly? What does it do and how do you guys get into that incubator? Um, so when, um, when I was in graduate school, in Missouri, um, right? In, at University of Missouri, which is, I'm not just saying that, it's one of the best journalism schools in, in the U.S., and I was really lucky to uh, to graduate from that, that particular program. I met three other truly bright, wonderful people, uh, two of them Fulbrighters, uh, another one an American computer uh, scientist. We met at a, I mean, we, we, we got together as a group as part of a technology competition at the University of Missouri. My first semester, I think, yeah, it was my, my, was my first month there. Your very first month. My very wow. first month, yeah. Okay. And we were, this competition was put together by the University of Missouri with this intention of creating any kind of tool for media, for media purposes. That, that would also integrate the Apple Watch. The Apple Watch at the time was, I feel like it wasn't even as popular as it is right now. The Apple was kind of trying to figure out what to do with it. And I, from, it was my understanding that at a the time they were actually going around schools to sort of, you know, try to incentivize people to use the Apple Watch in their projects of, you know, more cool, cool things would come out of that. And so we, uh, this competition involved the design thinking course that we were supposed to take throughout, I think it was a year or, or no, it, it was, it was one semester. So we had a pitch and then a one semester design thinking course with people who were training us in everything that meant that, you know, everything related to how to create a product from ideation to implementation of the business plan around with marketing and all that. And we won this competition with an app that was, uh, we created a tool for, for reporters. We wanted, you know, as part of our idea of bringing more technology to the media, we created this tool that automated part of the reporting process. We offered our, uh, our users an instant transcription tool for people going in the field and interviewing people. So, so meaning that you, you say something in audio format and it transcribes to text. Yeah, say, okay. um, and the, so this was a concept in 2015. Um, say you and I would have this interview and you would need to record it for the purpose of your uh, your writing an article. The iPhone at the time was uh, was was designed to do the uh, the recording for us. Uh, you would get after when you were pressing stop, you would get an instant transcription of your, of your recording. At the same time, during the recording, you could add time codes or highlight particular parts that would actually show up as highlighted in your in your uh, transcript. This transcript would be synced um, 
on cloud with your editor. Say you were working in a remote place. I don't know. You're stuck in somewhere in northern Kashmir, India, somewhere. And you didn't have, you know, a way of, of actually writing the article. You would just, you just interview someone and the, the transcript would then be sent out to your editor in Washington, DC or something that would have access to your notes in real time. And the Apple Watch was working as a remote control. If you were away from the device that was doing the recording, which was the iPhone, you could just, you know, use your, your, your Apple Watch to, to guide the, the conversation, to add the time codes and the highlights, think, you know, press conferences, and your source is very far away from you as a journalist, just put your phone next to them, and then from the other side of the room, you just add the time codes and the, and the highlights. Mm-hmm. And um, the reason so kind of like those situations where you have a thousand mics in yeah. front of <laughs> in front of someone talking about a scandal. Your phone is there. You're right, at the yeah. back of the room. And, yep. Okay. Yep, yep. And the reason was that you know we we worked in where we we interacted with with, with the media for you know many years, and uh, we realized there's there's so many so many hours are just lost by with reporters simply transcribing notes. And uh, reporters, this is a... That's what interns are for. (laughs) (laughs) You would think you can actually use someone else to do your transcriptions. It's not, it's not the same. Because when I had interns, I would, I would actually avoid giving them, you know, things to transcribe because in the end, I would still have to go over the recording and see mm-hmm. if they got it right, see if they got the context right, the names yeah, right. It's one thing true, to be present, it's another thing That's kind of like giving someone my podcast episode to edit. It didn't turn out good. But yeah, <laughs> as you were saying. So this was, you know, a, a routine task that I, that we strongly believe that should be automated. Just as, you know, a lot of other tasks in the media could be automated. And we, we wanted to make sure that we, we, we free up some time for, for journalists to, to think about things that really matter, that, you know, really brought about, helped us differentiate ourselves from other professions. And this is creativity and this is context and expertise. And if you allow a journalist to spend two more hours, you know, instead of transcribing, thinking about what the story should be about, call two, three other sources and, you know, come up with a better concept for that story, in the end, I think the media outlet just, just wins. You know, you, you, don't, you don't need to, like, to invest so many hours as a reporter and just, you know, simply typing in words when you just can focus on, on the bigger picture. And they, there are many apps there that do now, that, that do that now, because the, there's some sort of trend that, you know, happened uh, after since we, uh, ever since we, we sort of, you know, left this project aside, uh, we are, we're happy to see that, you know, this idea, even though it's not ours anymore, it's, you know, I, I'm using transcription applications and I think they're, they're a good thing. I want to live in a world where a journalist does not have to transcribe a word because I, I want to focus on, on the real things. Yeah. And we even have, you know, the media has, or bigger media outlets have started to automate a bunch of things, including stories. There are stories nowadays that are just wait, automated by stories. Hmm? Wait, 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 wait. There are stories created by yes, algorithms. Created by algorithms. For instance, earnings reports or sports oh, reports. Okay, okay, okay. Those are templates that, that makes uh, sense. algorithms are, are, are putting together. Or sense. even the Washington Wait, wait, actual stories? So I can understand actual like... Actual stories, actual oh. articles are written by... by so it's not just like a score that, okay, these are the scores no, from no, the it's, weekend. It's, it's a template. Oh. So it's a template of articles that are just, you know, being changed uh, based on the, the differences in data. And obviously being reviewed by an editor, but still, you know, there's there's no other reporter or writer who's like going, going over data and telling you Amazon made this much money in the past. Yeah, that, that actually makes sense because a bunch of quarterly earnings report that I read is kind of like repetitive and I was like, yeah. is it the same analysts 
<laughs> across well, the board as doing the same simply, thing. You know, it's you, you don't wow. you don't need a writer to do that for you anymore. And even with videos, I know the Washington Post was experimenting with an algorithm that was just creating um, or adding B-roll uh, images mm -hmm. to particular stories. So you wouldn't have, you wouldn't need like... I'm sorry, explain B-roll for people who are not like... B-roll is footage. It's, yeah. you know, back of the footage that sort of net, helps you narrate a, a particular story based on a script. Yeah. Um, so they were, uh, they were using this, um, I think they're still doing that for very short videos, videos that are supposed to be posted on social media or something that's not, you know artistic in any way, um, like news, um, they were using algorithms to put together the actual wow. uh, I'm, I'm almost having like a light bulb moment because that's not something I ever thought about. <laughs> I can imagine other applications Listen, to I use think automation, automation is going to be part of it. It's, it's going to change or hopefully it's going to change every routine task in every profession. Yeah, I mean, um, AI I'm not worried that automation is going to replace jobs. I'm worried about, you know, automation not coming sooner so we would have more free time to actually do the things that we're supposed to be doing. <laughs> like hiking? <laughs> <laughs> like storytelling. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Uh, well, so just to like uh, encapsulate everything you just said, so it, it was like a competition in school. Yeah. You were part of like a team of three people, I guess? We were four. In the team. Okay, four people. You guys won the competition. Yeah. Did you proceed with the idea after we school? Got a, as part of our uh, prize, we got an invitation from uh, from Apple to travel to Cupertino and present our product to Apple. Wow. And this was something that started off your first month of being in it was <laughs> okay, not bad. From out, right? <laughs> not bad. Um, so afterwards, after that visit to at Apple, we were highly encouraged to pursue this as a as a business or try to uh, push the concept of it forward. And we gave it a shot. Um, we were incubated two times. One of them was in Chicago at the largest business incubator in Chicago, eighteen seventy one. Another one in uh, Missouri at the Missouri Innovation Center, and it was. Um, it was a, it's, it was very eye opening, and um, we we learned so much not just about the actual um, product, but business development. It was just a, it, it's, it's challenging to put together a an ambitious project. It was a very complex application that involved a lot of parts, and at some point, due to a lot of other reasons that didn't have to do with the the actual application, uh, we had to leave aside the project. So that like team dynamics kind of things or funding or what? Um, it was kind of like a mix of all things. Um, now, and I'm saying this just for like the benefit of like entrepreneurs or want to be entrepreneurs who might be listening. What, what are some of the learning points you can, you know, talk about? Um, One of the main things that we learned is that you need to make sure that your ideas are not arriving on the market either too soon or too late. So timing. Timing is very important. Mm. And in technology, timing is everything in the sense that you can be developing something or you can have an idea that's very, it's too futuristic for whatever it is that you are uh, proposing at the time. Yeah. Or an idea that can be copied very easily or has already been implemented. In our case, yeah. I think we, we, our idea was a bit, to advance for technology at the time, and ironically, it's not advanced now anymore. I mean, it's right yeah. now is that the technology has caught up. Uh, Speech-to-text technology was not that accurate and that advanced at the time, so we were we were not developing the speech-to-text technology ourselves. We were partnering with IBM Watson, and we were relying re relying on whatever it is that they that you know I, that you know providers were were giving us, and. Um, 
It was also challenging in the sense that our team was international. So after we graduated, all of you, all four well, of you, we had one American in the team, and okay. I was from Romania. A friend of mine was is from Ukraine. My other friend is from Russia. So oh, when nice, we graduated, we nice kind of team. scattered around the world. Mm. And it's it's challenging because you know the business didn't take off soon enough. So we all got jobs. Our time was limited. So I don't know. It's um. Again, I think timing is is very important. And timing related to everything, technology. But we can't timing. really control timing, can we? It's less like a macro. You can. You can. It's, it's like saying that you know you lost the competition because you didn't apply. If you wouldn't, you know, oh, okay. didn't apply. <laughs> <laughs> you can't gotcha. really complain that you didn't succeed if you didn't like play the game, right? Um, so yeah, I think there are to some extent timing is a problem for for all of us. But I think you know the better the the better you can assess time resource and timing, I think the better you'll be. What's one thing you would have done differently if you could do it all over again? You have done like a smaller team, larger team, or more technologists on the team. Would you have focused on funding more? Would you have started internationally? What would you have done more? I think one important thing for us is to have more technologists uh, in our team. We only had one and it was challenging that we had to um, you know, sort of create a whole, the whole concept based on around one person, or the proof of concept, not the entire platform. Obviously. But um, wait, sorry, was it like did it? I'm sorry to cut you short. Did it like uh, remain at MVP stage for a while, or you actually got published like in an app store? Or did you actually? No, uh, let's just say it was an MVP for for um, for the entire duration of the project, in the sense that you know, a, a fully developed app required a lot of um, tech work behind it. Um, so if yeah, if, if we could have done something differently, I think having more engineers on board from the very beginning would have been a good idea. This being said, we didn't start this project with this idea of building a business from the very beginning. We were part of a competition, so we never expected this. I mean, it's not that we didn't expect it; it's, we weren't focusing on you know creating it from from scratch from day one as a functioning company. Um, so maybe that's one thing that I would do differently. If I would start a new entrepreneurial project right now, I would have this idea of becoming a company, a fully functional company from day one. That was just an idea that was just very well received that pushed us toward this this entrepreneurial endeavor. Um, so yeah. Well, I mean, no experience is lost, right? No knowledge is lost. I used to be someone who used to take my time, and still to this day, I like take my time on certain things. Like me and my brother were part of a magazine when we were teenagers, like a teen magazine back in Nigeria. And the plan was immediately we got into school, like our first year, we'll get into school, the University of Benin with our own magazine. So I spent like a year, you know, trying to research like these uh, barcodes on the back of magazines, all this kind, and what's the percentage of people who have magazines over 50 pages, what's the distribution like? My brother just got like a writer and like whipped up like a, his first issue was like a four page paper, non-glossy magazine. And he just built from there. It just, it taught me the, the value in execution because sometimes you don't have the best idea, but you have to, ex- to execute. That's why, like when I look at my f- previous episodes in this podcast, you know, it, Earlier, even now, like I'm still working on a lot of things, but I can see myself getting better and better. So it's that you having that experience, like I'm sure it's going to help you out sometime in the future. So it's good that you guys went all out to, you know, even try to do that. It's admirable. Oh, yeah. And I, I think, you know, as you said, no experience is lost. And every kind of, every type of, everything that you get to live, I think, is a lesson learned. 
And you are right when you say, you know, ideas are everywhere. Everyone can have ideas. What matters is how you implement them. And if there's one message that I took from, from this, from this project is that your team will make or break a project. The stronger mm. the team, the stronger your project. And the weaker the team, you know, the more problem. And it, it goes for, you know, every single aspect of your life. Uh, you, you work in teams on a daily basis. Your job, make sure you choose, you know, um, workplaces where you work in strong teams and people who are sticking together for the same, you know, ideal. They don't work against one another. Your friends are your team. You know, they want you to succeed or they, they want to drag you down. Your life partner is part of a team. So I think, you know, truly people push you forward or push you back depending on, on the situation. But so if, if there's one thing that I, that I learn and I learn every day that, you know, if I want to do something, no matter what my idea is, if I don't have the right people around me, either supporting me, encouraging me or opening doors for me, you might feel more reluctant. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. And that's almost like the VC model, like most venture capitalists invest in teams, not necessarily. Yeah. Products. And we heard that, you know, we, 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 we pitched around the country with, for multiple investors and business incubators and all that. And everyone was telling us, you know, your idea is great, but what we like about you guys is the team. And yeah. it's not just the, the way you choose your teammates having different levels of expertise in different fields because you want to, you know, act as a whole, mm. but also how you get along. You know, the, this, you know, you've got to, you've got to make sure that you can work with people you're, you're connected with. It's not just, you know, even in recruiting, you're not just hiring the person who has the most, um, the, the, the most sophisticated skills in a particular field. You hire also the person who you can work with because correct. they will have to be around you all the time. So correct, correct. Oh, interesting. Very great insights. Um, is there, uh, how many, talk a little bit about your travel experiences. Uh, what are some of the interesting places you've been to uh, all over the world? Where do you wish to go to uh, that you haven't been to? I mean, mine is Transylvania, obviously. <laughs> Europe. <laughs> what about you? Um, so I think one of the most interesting places for me has been Israel, I think. Israel yeah. and Palestine is, um, well, that region, that particular region is, is very dear to me. And also I learned a lot of lessons by just, you know, visiting there, visiting that place a couple of times. I got to study for a short stint in Tel Aviv and, um, wow. it was, it's enriching. It, it's, it's a culture that has taught me a lot about living in the now. Um, I have this, huge respect from both my Israeli and my Palestinian friends. They are so present in, our, in their lives. Sometimes I feel, I feel way more than I am because they have seen, you know, things being built and just destroyed in front of their eyes mm. so many times. And, uh, like danger is a reality. I mean, you're, you're, you're actually in danger in that, in that particular area. You can you know, get bombs and any given point or just, you know, and I appreciate the intensity to which, which people live their lives there. And most of my friends in that area are very brave, very open-minded. They are not afraid of traveling the world, you know, packing their bags and moving and starting fresh. I, can, I, I cannot generalize, but again, my friends from that particular area are very well-educated because they have to rely on their knowledge to, you know, just be able to move around. Mobility has been incentivized by their, um, their level of education. I like the messiness of the of both cultures. It's it, they they're beautiful in their messiness. You know, they're very they're very wild in in, in, a, in a positive way, if you, if you ask me. Um, and it's it's it is fascinating to see 
you know, that particular region that's that's been going through this conflict for, for, for decades, it's a life lesson, you know, it's a life lesson of, of survival, of tolerance or lack of tolerance, of people not being able to work things out or not giving a shot or having way too many others meddling in their internal affairs. Yeah. It's a it's it's the story of the world at a at a at a smaller scale, you know, like some other folks have made a mess and now we have to figure our stuff out on our own. And you know, there's there's no good solution for, for anything or if there is it's not enforced or there's not enough support. But yeah, that, that particular region is, is very dear to me and very interesting. I like Russia a lot. I visited St. Petersburg, one of my it's one of my favorite cities in the world. St. Petersburg is very again very lively, very fun. It's a it's a fun city, very rich in history and culture. Um, I really recommend lots of operas. Sorry, lots of operas to attend. Operas, yeah. Um, I'm not. I have not been to the opera in Saint Petersburg. I presume they have something there. <laughs> um, the Hermitage is very beautiful. The the, the museum. Um, and probably it's, it's because that that's more of my Slavic culture connecting to to the Russian landscape. And I also have plenty of friends from Russia, so I always have you know fun whenever I connect with them or I have a friend of mine is she's from uh, close from a pretty a region that's close to St. Petersburg. I don't think I've done, I didn't explore Asia like at all. And I would uh, love to. Um, yeah. I've always wanted to visit like Southeast Asia. Vietnam, yeah. I'm fascinated Thailand. by India actually. I would yeah. love to go to India and I have, I have plenty of friends from India who could tell me like amazing stories about that region. And it, it, it is a, it is a region that, you know, to some extent is very, it's kind of similar to Israel-Palestinian. You know, they, they, they yeah. share the British legacy. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I think a couple of days ago, like two days ago, there's a renewed, something happened. It's like new, the whole uh, Indian Kashmir, Pakistani Kashmir thing. Like something happened on the border like two days ago. I was yeah, I think they, the, the, the conflict started again. Um, again not, yeah. I'm not following that particular region, but about something the... I mean, peace and love to everyone who's from there or currently there, all of us family and friends there. Like, it's, it's, it's very disheartening, you know, to see things like that, you know, still going on in the world that we live in today. But, you know, we, we can only try our best to spread love as much as possible. This podcast is only two ways trying to bring cultures together and, you know, have these conversations and hopefully break down some of those stereotypes uh, to, you know, people who are listening to this uh, from all over the world. so Because I know I live in the States and because um, somehow my friends are Latin or Latin American, I think I, it's it's about time I go visit Latin America. Some, I, I got to say yeah. something, but, you know, I think I, think I, I have no excuse at this point. <laughs> <laughs> my roommate just came back from, uh... oh, my goodness, am I blanking out? <laughs> <laughs> My roommate just came back from uh, Cuba, for Christ's sakes. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why it took me a while to, but yeah, he just came back from Cuba. I, mean, yeah. I saw that you interviewed Mujica, the president of Uruguay. You have a, you, you, you were mentioning that you, you interviewed him. No, I didn't interview him. Oh. I don't think I've interviewed the no. president before I remember that. <laughs> but he, Say something about Mujica, because we, we ran by, the, by his... 
Oh, no, what I was saying, because we're currently recording on the campuses of American University in Washington, D.C., oh. and yeah, we're in the building for the School of International Service, and the School of International Service has had a number of speakers in the past, uh, the president of Uruguay, Malika being one of them, Obama, Malala, and a bunch of other people. So I was just trying to tell you that I interviewed uh, a friend from Uruguay Oh, okay. yeah, a, a few episodes ago. Well, next time you go from Mujica. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I mean, I'm trying to build up. I'm, I'm trying to talk to a few people. I know that he's pretty people. swell. He's pretty, he reminds me a lot of Angela Merkel. He's very low-key. Mm. Um, he's not into, like, boasting about wealth and all hey, Of course, of course. He, he. Wait, is he the same person? Well, I have to do some research. Is it is it the same person that's considered like the most frugal president? Is it a person that like he drives like a punch buggy? Like, yeah, I think he's the one. Things like that. Oh, that's interesting. I'm not sure who else was. Uh, I, I think he's the one. He had this reputation of being low key and not being interested in you know, any yeah. kind of like yeah. um, financial rewards. And Angela Merkel has the same reputation in Europe. She, I think, she lived in the same apartment in Eastern. East Berlin for a while, and she's not interested in, you know, just uh, being more prominent in terms of uh, this display of wealth. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, thank you very much, Cynthia, for coming. Thank um, you for having me. I rate my interview skills. How does it feel being on the other <laughs> side? <laughs> How does it feel this being like, on the other side? <laughs> I'm used to, you know, being the one who answers questions. Uh, uh, congratulations, you've done an amazing job. Thank you very much. I mean, coming from a journalist. Next time, go for Mukika, right? <laughs> uh, I will. <laughs> I mean, the little bits, little, little uh, baby steps will get there. So, um, this podcast is, you know, centered on disseminating information about other cultures, but we do that in a really casual way, right? But I like to play something called Endgame at the end of every every episode, which is like a game we just play at the end, so we name it End, end Game. Uh, Disney, please don't sue me. And, <laughs> and it sounds like, a, like a, a, a Taylor Swift song. Didn't she have a song called Endgame? I don't know. I'm like, just testing your, your pop culture references here. Uh, I mean, I'm more I'm a more hip hop guy, but like Taylor Swift, the album I like was what was the teardrops on my guitar? Oh. Like the more mean uh, that when she was more country, I I love those albums more than like the pop albums. I okay. guess so. Yeah, 1989 was cool too. Was it 1989? Uh, welcome to New York. Anyway, um, yeah, Taylor. Tay Tay. <laughs> so I'll just ask you a bunch of questions. Uh, I tried to select uh, one question centered around Romania, one centered around media, and one centered around technology, just to help disseminate information. And pretty easy questions. Well, maybe not the first one, but let's see. <laughs> I mean, I'm not a soccer fan, but um, can you name two or three clubs from Romania, Romanian soccer clubs? Sure. We have. Um Stawa and Dinamo, which are both based in Bucharest, and Cluj, which is something that... So those are two different clubs for... Stawa, Dinamo, and Yeah, Cluj. so Stawa, Bucharest, and Dinamo, Bucharest. Yeah. Gotcha. And Cluj, which is the one that you have a problem with. Yeah, Cluj. <laughs> I think, they, they, was it Chelsea? I think it was like the 2011, or so I'll go look it up, but yeah, Cluj is... I think they are like top of the Sorry. league right now. <laughs> but it's all good, it's all good. Uh, media, we kind of like touched on that, uh, talking about news cycle. Um, 
giving your interpretation of what a new cycle is, um, or maybe you just want to do that again for people who are not in the industry. Uh, so what exactly is a new cycle? Some people have heard that before, but maybe don't know what it is. A new cycle? Mm-hmm. Well, it depends on what you're, what you're referring to. Usually a new cycle is a cycle that has to do with like you know, broadcasting news. Uh, it can be uh, plenty of media outlets now, right now are on a 24-7 news cycle because we never stop producing content. We never stop, you know, broadcasting content. Um, but yeah, it's that thing that never stops. Those alerts that never stop on your phone, those, you know, yeah. you turn on the TV, it's still news. You turn on the TV and then you turn it back on, it's still yeah. news. <laughs> That's I mean, a news cycle. Yeah, I mean, the period between when news is disseminated, which is like every second now. So, right. right. Yeah, gotcha. And last question. Uh, this one is a bit, uh, do you happen to know how many apps are currently on the iOS store? The app store? The app store. I have yeah. no idea. I presume a lot of them. There is a bunch of them. <laughs> yeah. A I'm, million, I don't know. I mean, currently close. Uh, currently, they have about, uh, I didn't know this, but Apple actually has 400 million registered accounts with credit card information. 400 million? 400 million. But, that, but that's accounts. That, so you, you asked me about apps. the number of apps. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting there. And okay. Apps. <laughs> so, but just like I was trying to do research on this side, and I'm like, uh-huh. Apple has 400 million credit cards. Like, wow, that that's more than the Capital One thing. But. I mean, Anyway, uh, currently they have a 650,000 unique apps on the App Store. Um, so Unique apps? Okay. Yeah, so I guess more and more. I guess more. Yeah. Probably Google Play has more. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is just the App Store, right? right. So like Google Play and other uh, places have more. But yeah, thank you very much for coming. Uh, do you want to like drop your social media handles if people want to reach out to you, maybe continue some of these conversations if people want to, I don't know, when next you're in Russia, if people want to say hi, whatever, buy your coffee. <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at uh, Cynthia Radu. You spell that S-I-N-T-I-A-R-A-D-U. And also on LinkedIn. Follow me on LinkedIn as well, Cynthia Radu, U.S. News and World Report. Perfect. Still, still a technology reporter. Say hi. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, you can also follow Culture Class Podcast. It's Culture Class Podcast everywhere uh, except Twitter. Twitter is Culture Class Pod. Send us an email, cultureclasspodcast at gmail.com. Reach out to Cynthia and let's continue the conversation. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. Bye.